Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 507, A Poisonous Brightness. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I have put together a hammock without having a clue what I was doing. I put together the hammock base and attached a hammock that I think I have had in a box somewhere for several years. It's a kind of a special hammock because it has a bug net on it. And that makes Thing 2 very happy. He got up this morning early. He dragged a blanket downstairs with him. He went out, climbed in the hammock, zipped himself in, and snuggled up with his blanket and went back to sleep. Which I think is a perfectly appropriate thing to do at the end of summer when you have Two in a row, two fantastically beautiful days, which we have had. It's been dry. It's been warm, but not so hot. It was 56 degrees when I woke up this morning, and I went and had a a lovely walk along the canal. And I found a new app. When my mom was here and we were out walking, I found an app called Seed, spelled how it sounds, S-E-E-D. It is an, an app. There used to be many, many moons ago, an app, I think it was called Noah, N-O-A-H, the name, that did the same thing, only we hadn't really achieved crowdsourced information yet, the same way that we have with, say, Waze, the map app. Seed is uh, crowdsourcing flora and fauna, or at least, at least flora. I think it is fauna. I haven't had much, much chance to add fauna to it. But you go, you take a picture of a plant that you don't recognize, Uh, flowers, leaves, stems, whatever you can get. And the app goes through its listings of all of the identified plants that it's got in its database and then tells you. Sometimes it can only get to the species. Sometimes it can get all the way to the common name of the plant. It's really cool. So I got a couple new pictures for seed and came home ready to record because I was listening to Treasure Island as I walked. And what that comes down to is I had much nicer weather than Jim and the crew had in our chapters, chapters 12 and 13 today in Treasure Island. Picking up where we left off, we know they're in trouble because what Jim heard in the apple barrel has let us know the kind of trouble that they're in. So far, the guys in charge haven't learned. We have to wait for Jim to tell them in order to find out what they are going to do about it. And that means we are at the island and on the precipice, on the brink, as it were. And that means there's a whole mess load of stuff I don't want to talk about before the chapter, because this is one of those where the details are the fun part. And spoiler alerting you on these two chapters, I think would just not be so nice. 
because there's some great, great writing in here. And giving it a chance to unfold for you is really fun. In the beginning of chapter 12, you are going to hear what I think is some beautiful and incredibly succinct descriptive writing, talking about the the island and, and how it looks and kind of the, the first impressions of it. But you're also going to hear some really, really well done external characterization, where descriptions of other characters give you a lot of information that you just kind of file away in the back of your head, and eventually it'll all be worthwhile. Now, there are a couple of terms that you should know. Uh, one I think we talked about before, yard arm. That is the spar up on the mast, and the sails are hung from the spar beam. So it's a cross beam across the top of a mast. Sometimes the spar will go up and down, like you can raise and lower the sails based on how you use your yard arm. But there's also a colloquialism. The sun is over the yard arm means the sun is high enough in the sky to make it appropriate to drink alcohol. So there's that as well. You will hear a reference to warping, which has nothing to do with weaving. You will hear the statement, the ship warped its way. What they are doing at that point, if you haven't, it goes by quickly, which is why I'm giving you this heads up. The ship winds up with not enough wind to pull it around up the coast. So the guys have to get out into the dinghies, into the smaller boats, and row. And by rowing, pull the big old Hispaniola with them up and around the coast. That is them warping their way. Now, while that is happening, there's another statement that goes by really fast that I think the history of it is really interesting. You will hear, uh, I think it's Jim say, something about the man in the chains who got everywhere more water than was down in the chart. And all that means is the guy who's in the chains, in the chains is a part of the boat near the front, kind of a, a little area to stand in off to uh, the side of the prow of the boat. It was a place where you could raise and lower your sounding line or lead line because it had a lead weight at the bottom of it. But take it down to the bottom and every so often it had little uh, different colored or different fabric ties tied around knots in the line. This gave everybody the opportunity to tell how many fathoms deep the water was so you'd know if it was safe to pilot the ship into that location. A fathom is six feet. They would mark two fathoms, three fathoms, five fathoms, seven fathoms, it went on and on. So this guy, everywhere he, he takes a depth sounding, is getting more water than what is indicated on the, the map that doesn't have the treasure marked on it. So you know that they are absolutely safe as they go. You also learn a couple of other characterization things at that moment as well. The other really interesting tidbit that has nothing to do with the book, but that has everything to do with taking a sounding this way, is that they would often coat that lead weight in tallow, like candle tallow, so that when they dropped it and it hit the floor of the ocean, when they pulled it up again to take their reading, they would be able to see what it landed in. Like, did it land in sand? Or did it land in crushed up shells? They were able to tell a lot about where they were and what the bottom looked like based on what came up on that lead weight. Cool, right? So ingenious. People. 
have been in the past. I loved it. So that's that. The last thing that you will hear, and because this person's name is also a part of the body, I found myself wondering what was going on the several times that I read this chapter. You are going to hear the words, hands was one of mine. Trelawney says it. What he means is Israel Hands was one of the guys that he hired. Not Long John Silver, not Smollett, one of his guys. All right, with that, I am going to drop you into chapters 12 and 13 of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 12, Council of War. There was a great rush of feet across the deck. I could hear people tumbling up from the cabin and the forecastle, and slipping in an instant outside my barrel. I dived behind the foresail and made a double toward the stern, and came out upon the open deck in time to join Hunter and Dr. Livesey in the rush for the weather bow. There all hands were already congregated. A belt of fog had lifted almost simultaneously with the appearance of the moon. Away to the southwest of us we saw two low hills, about a couple of miles apart, and rising behind one of them a third and higher hill, whose peak was still buried in the fog. All three seemed sharp and conical in figure. So much I saw almost in a dream, for I had not yet recovered from my horrid fear of a minute or two before, and then I heard the voice of Captain Smollett issuing orders. The Hispaniola was laid a couple of points nearer the wind, and now sailed a course that would just clear the island to the east. "'And now, men,' said the captain, when all was sheeted home, "'has any one of you ever seen that land ahead?' "'I have, sir,' said Silver. "'I've watered there with a trader I was cooking.' "'The anchorage is on the south behind an islet, I fancy?' asked the captain. "'Yes, sir. Skeleton Island, they calls it. It were a main place for pirates once, and a hand we had on board knowed all their names for it. The hill to the nord they calls Foremast Hill. There are three hills in a row running southerd, four main and mizzen, sir.' But the main, that's the big un with the cloud on it, they usually calls the spy-glass, by reason of a lookout they kept when they was in the anchorage cleaning. For it's there they clean their ships, sir, asking your pardon. I have a chart here, said Captain Smollett. See if that's the place. Long John's eyes burned in his head as he took the chart, but by the fresh look of the paper I knew he was doomed to disappointment. This was not the map we found in Billy Bone's chest, but an accurate copy complete in all things, names and heights and soundings, with the single exception of the red crosses and the written notes. Sharp as must have been his annoyance, Silver had the strength of mind to hide it. "'Yes, sir,' said he, "'this is the spot to be sure, and very prettily drawed out. Who might a done that, I wonder? The pirates were too ignorant, I reckon. Ah, here it is, Cap'n Kidd's anchorage, J. 
just the name my shipmate called it. There is a strong current round along the south, and then away up north up the west coast. Right you was, sir, said he, to haul your wind and keep the weather of the island. Leastways, if such was your intention as to enter and careen, there ain't no better place for that in these waters. Thank you, my man, said Captain Smollett. I'll ask you later on to give us a help. You may go. I was surprised at the coolness with which John avowed his knowledge of the island, and I own I was half frightened when I saw him drawing nearer to myself. He did not know, to be sure, that I had overheard his counsel from the apple-barrel, and yet I had, by this time, taken such a horror of his cruelty, duplicity, and power, that I could scarce conceal a shudder when he laid his hand upon my arm. "'Ah!' said he, "'this here is a sweet spot, this island. A sweet spot for a lad to get ashore on. You'll bathe and you'll climb trees, and you'll hunt goats, you will, and you'll get aloft on them hills like a goat yourself. Why, it makes me young again. I was going to forget my timber leg, I was. It's a pleasant thing to be young, and have ten toes you may lay to that. When you want to go a bit of exploring, you ask old John, and he'll put up a snack for you to take along. And clapping me in the friendliest way upon the shoulder, he hobbled off forward and went below. Captain Smollett, the squire, and Dr. Livesey were talking together on the quarter-deck, and, anxious as I was to tell them my story, I durst not interrupt them openly. While I was still casting about in my thoughts to find some probable excuse, Dr. Livesey called me to his side. He had left his pipe below, and, being a slave to tobacco, had meant that I should fetch it. But as soon as I was near enough to speak and not be overheard, I broke out immediately. "'Doctor, let me speak. Get the captain and squire down to the cabin, and then make some pretense to send for me. I have terrible news.' The doctor changed countenance a little, but next moment he was master of himself. "'Thank you, Jim,' said he quite loudly. "'That was all I wanted to know,' as if he had asked me a question. And with that he turned on his heel and rejoined the other two. They spoke together for a little, and though none of them started or raised his voice, or so much as whistled, it was plain enough that Dr. Livesey had communicated my request for the next thing that I heard was the captain giving an order to Job Anderson, and all hands were piped on deck. "'My lads,' said Captain Smollett, "'I've a word to say to you. This land that we have sighted is the place we have been sailing to. Mr. Trelawney, being a very open-handed gentleman, as we all know, has just asked me a word or two and as I was able to tell him that every man on board had done his duty, a low and a loft, as I never asked to see it done better, why, he and I and the doctor are going below to the cabin to drink your health and luck, and you'll have grog served out to you to drink our health and luck. I'll tell you what I think of this. I think it handsome. 
and if you think as I do, you'll give a good sea-cheer for the gentleman that does it. The cheer followed. That was a matter of course, but it rang out so full and hearty that I confess I could hardly believe these same men were plotting for our blood. "'One more cheer for Cap'n Smollett!' cried Long John, when the first had subsided, and this was given with a will. On the top of that the three gentlemen went below, and not long after word was sent forward that Jim Hawkins was wanted in the cabin. I found them all three seated around the table, a bottle of Spanish wine and some raisins before them, and the doctor smoking away with his wig on his lap, and that I knew was a sign that he was agitated. The stern window was open, for it was a warm night, and you could see the moon shining behind on the ship's wake. "'Now, Hawkins,' said the squire, "'you have something to say. Speak up.' I did as I was bid, and, short as I could make it, told the whole details of Silver's conversation. Nobody interrupted me till I was done, nor did any one of the three of them make so much as a movement, but they kept their eyes upon my face from first to last. "'Jim,' said Dr. Livesey, "'take a seat.' And they made me sit down at a table beside them poured me out a glass of wine, filled my hands with raisins, and all three, one after the other, and each with a bow, drank my good health and their service to me for my luck and courage. "'Now, Captain,' said the squire, "'you were right, and I was wrong. I own myself an ass, and I await your orders.' "'No more an ass than I, sir,' returned the captain. I never heard of a crew that meant to mutiny, but that what signs before, for any man that had an eye in his head to see the mischief, and take steps accordingly. But this crew, he added, beats me. Captain, said the doctor, with your permission, that's Silver, a very remarkable man. He'd look remarkably well from a yard-arm, sir, returned the captain. But this is talk. This don't lead to anything. I see three or four points, and with Mr. Trelawney's permission, I'll name em. You, sir, are the captain. It is for you to speak, said Mr. Trelawney, grandly. First point, began Mr. Smollett, we must go on because we can't turn back. If I gave the word to turn about, they would rise at once. Second point, we have time before us, at least until this treasure's found. Third point, there are faithful hands. Now, sir, it's got to come to blows sooner or later, and what I propose is to take time by the forelock, as the saying is, and to come to blows some fine day when they least expect it. We can count, I take it, on your own home servants, Mr. Trelawney. As upon myself, declared the squire. Three, reckoned the captain. Ourselves make seven, counting Hawkins there. Now, about the honest hands? Most likely are Trelawney's own men, said the doctor. Those he picked up for himself before he lit on silver. Nay, replied the squire. Hands was one of mine. I did think I could have trusted hands. 
added the captain. "'And to think that they're all Englishmen,' broke out the squire. "'Sir, I could find it in my heart to blow the ship up.' "'Well, gentlemen,' said the captain, "'the best that I can say is not much. "'We must lay to, if you please, and keep a bright lookout. "'It's trying on a man, I know. "'It would be pleasanter to come to blows. "'But there's no help for it till we know our men. "'Lay to and whistle for a wind. "'That's my view.' "'Jim here,' said the doctor, "'can help us more than any one. "'The men are not shy with him, and Jim is a noticing lad.' "'Hawkins, I put prodigious faith in you,' added the squire. "'I began to feel pretty desperate at this, for I felt altogether helpless. "'And yet, by an odd train of circumstances, "'it was indeed through me that safety came. "'In the meantime, talk as we pleased,' there were only seven out of the twenty-six on whom we knew we could rely. And out of these seven, one was a boy, so that the grown men on our side were six to their nineteen. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 How My Shore Adventure Began the appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we had made a great deal of way during the night, and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast. Grey-coloured woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sand-break in the lower lands, and by many tall trees of the pine family outtopping the others, some singly, some in clumps. But the general colouring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All was strangely shaped, and the spyglass, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration running up sheer from almost every side, and then suddenly cut off at the top, like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks, the rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes. For though I was a good enough sailor when there was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or two, above all in the morning, on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this, perhaps it was the look of the island, with its grey melancholy woods, and wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear, foaming and thundering on the steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shore-birds were fishing and crying all around us, and you would have thought any one would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea, my heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from that first look onward I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, and there was no sign of any wind, 
and the boats had to be got out and manned, and the ship warped three or four miles round the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats, where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering, and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat, and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. "'Well,' he said, with an oath, "'it's not forever.' I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but the very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in the chains got everywhere more water than was down on the chart, John never hesitated once. "'There's a strong scour with the ebb,' he said. "'And this here passage has been dug out, in a manner of speaking, with a spade.' We brought up just where the anchor was on the chart, about a third of a mile from each shore, the mainland on one side, and Skeleton Island on the other. The bottom was clean sand. The plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds wheeling and crying over the woods, but in less than a minute they were down again, and all was once more silent. The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods, the trees coming right down to high water mark, the shores mostly flat, and the hilltops standing round at a distance, in a sort of amphitheatre, one here, one there. Two little rivers, or rather two swamps, emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, and the foliage around that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness. From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, for they were quite buried among trees, and if it had not been for the chart on the companion, we might have been the first that ever anchored there since the islands arose out of the seas. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree-trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing, like someone tasting a bad egg. "'I don't know about treasure,' he said, "'but I'll stick my wig. There's fever here.' If the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. They lay about the deck, growling together in talk. The slightest order was received with a black look, and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny, it was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger. Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice, and, and as for example, no man could have shown a better. He fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to every one. If an order were given, John would be on his crutch in an instant, with the cheeriest, "'Aye, aye, sir,' in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, 
he kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst. We held a council in the cabin. "'Sir,' said the captain, "'if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going in two shakes. If I don't, silver will see there's something under that, and the game's up. Now we've only one man to rely on. And who's that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. This is a tiff. He'd soon talk em out of it if he had the chance. And what I propose to do is to give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. If they none of them go, well, then, we hold the cabin, and God defend the right. If some go, you mark my words, sir, silver'll bring em aboard again, as mild as lambs. It was so decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the shoremen. Hunter, Joyce, and Redruth were taken into our confidence, and received the news with no less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for, and then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. "'My lads,' said he, "'we've had a hot day, and are all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore will hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water. You can take the gigs, and as many as please can go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun, half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought that they would break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed, for they all came out of their sulks in a moment, and gave a cheer that started the echo in a far-away hill, and sent the birds once more flying and squalling round the anchorage. The captain was too bright to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party, and I fancy it was as well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved that there were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders, only some more, some less, and a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any farther. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to embark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives. If six men were left by Silver, 
it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship, and since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy I had slipped over the side, and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar, saying, "'Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down!' But Silver, from the other boat, looked sharply over, and called out to know if that were me, and from that moment I began to regret what I had done. The crews raced for the beach, and in the boat I was in, having some start and being at once the lighter and the better manned, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, and I had caught a branch, and swung myself out, and plunged into the nearest thicket, while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards away. "'Jim! Jim!' I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose, till I could run no longer." So there goes Jim plunging into a poisonous brightness. I thought that was the most amazing two words to put together to describe the color and the danger that is facing them on Treasure Island. So cool. The writing, the description of the island is so brief. Robert Louis Stevenson does not belabor the point, but boy, did I think he got across everything he needed to get across about what they were walking into. And in case you were wondering, Peter Pan was written in 1904, which means that Skull Island, Skeleton Island, all of the descriptions of Treasure Island, I'm going out on a limb. I don't think it's a very long limb to say I'm fairly certain had read Treasure Island and that it affected him in his depiction of Never Never Land's Pirate Island. Just my two cents. Okay, so the pirates went through a, a period where they weren't hiding what they were doing, or at least they weren't hiding the grumblingness of their feelings about not being allowed to get out and look for treasure. Got it. But in the midst of all of that in the beginning, there is that moment with Long John, who he doesn't know that Jim knows what he's been up to. And he's treating Jim just like he's always been treating Jim, very friendly. And, oh, you're going to go have a great time. And, oh, if I had my leg back, oh, it's going to be great. And let me know if you're going ashore and I'll fix you a snack. And under normal circumstances, that would have been such a lovely thing. But now that we know what we know, that was such a threatening line. I got chills down the back of my neck, thinking, oh, I'll bet you'll fix him a snack. <laughs> but at the same time, it's hard to know if he really meant anything evil by that. Silver's far too interesting a person and a character. And what else have we learned about our characters on board the Hispaniola. We have learned that Livesey is what we may have suspected before, but Jim says it, a slave to tobacco. We also learned that Livesey takes off his wig when he is agitated. I thought that was a fairly impressive thing for Jim to have noticed character-wise about Dr. Livesey. We always knew that he was a smart cookie, so that's, that's easy. But we've also learned something important about Squire Trelawney. The second reality smacks him in the face in a way that is incontrovertible, a way that he, he cannot hide from the truth anymore. He owns it. 
He admits that he was foolish and that Smollett was right all along and wants to know what he can do to fix this. Of course, it's his neck on the line too, so duh, he wants to fix this. But still, there's no reason why he had to admit that he was the one at fault. And he does, mostly. Smollett, again, no dummy, knows that if he's the one who says, I'm going to give you grog, everybody's going to call BS on him. So instead, he goes up and says, Trelawney, Trelawney wants to give you guys each a round of grog so that you can drink our health, <laughs> fat chance, and we're going to go downstairs and we're going to drink your health and everybody's going to be peach keen jelly bean. And doing that was smart. Smarter was when he realized that if he gave any new orders, the ship really would mutiny and that the only way to try and let anything calm down was to let Silver be in charge of it and to get him off the ship with his men. So, Smollett says, take your shore leave, go and have a nice day. And unfortunately, it, it looked like everyone was going to go. So when they say they would fight the ship, it, it means they would sail that ship themselves and get the heck out of Dodge, marooning everybody else on the island. Unfortunately, Silver, no dummy, leaves six behind. Now, we don't know exactly who they are, but we can guess that it's probably a mixture of honest sailors and a several of Long John's guys, pirates. And that means that there's no way for Smollett and Livesey and the other honest guys to, to win and to get rest of the ship out of the hands of the pirates at that point. So Jim runs off with the guys in the dinghies, heading to shore, and then plows ahead into the jungle on his own. Both a smart kid and a stupid kid. But I guess that kind of sums up being a 13-year-old in general. And the last, the last thing to mention is we have heard Captain Kidd mentioned quite a few times. Captain Kidd actually has a really interesting history, and I'm, I'm going to link out to uh, a page for you from the show notes. Uh, just briefly, he was kind of badly played by some rich people. Uh, there was a whole a whole host of privateers, uh, people who weren't part of the Royal Navy, but were being paid by the government to do things for the country on the seas. And Captain Kidd was one of them. He was not a pirate the way Long John Silver is a pirate. And he was, in fact, kind of made, made to be a lesson to other pirates. So when you go back and watch something like the very first Pirates of Caribbean movie, and they talk about, the, the Navy guys talk about making an example of pirates and how the, the pirates, as they're sailing into the Tortuga Bay, you see the three pirate skeletons hanging there, and they're still hanging there. Okay, that was actually a thing, and that happened to Captain Kidd. He was eventually brought to trial. He wasn't captured. He went in thinking he was still legitimate and that politics hadn't changed behind him as he traveled. He was taken in. He was tried. He was condemned. He was hung. And then his body was put in a cage on the Thames, out where everybody could see it as it just rotted away. Just a warning to anyone who might be thinking that piracy looked like a good idea, or in this case, privateering. But they weren't calling it that anymore. Now it was just he was a pirate. So poor Captain Kidd. That just stinks. 
But uh, again, he has a really interesting history, and I will link out to a page or two for you so that you can go and read more about him, because he's um, his name is a name that I had heard a lot in reference to you know, piracy just in general. And, uh, and it's unfortunate that that's where his name got lodged in our collective historical mind. Ah, oh, well, there it is. That's about it for me. Take care. I hope you have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review at iTunes or like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or any one of a million different places that Craftlet wound up over the last 13 years. For more information on Craftlet, you can visit craftlit.com and subscribe via your favorite podcast app or download the Craftlet app so you can get all of your episodes right there in your hand, all in one place without having to hassle with anything else. So you can be sure not to miss any of Treasure Island. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Thanks. Thanks.